afternoon, America, and welcome to the Dean's List. Today is part two of the deep dive into the Protect Prayer in Schools Act. I really didn't think this deep dive would happen in one session. Uh, so today's number two, and, and I don't know if we'll if it's even going to get done today. I, I'm not sure how many, how many dives we're going to have to take to get to the bottom, but we want to do it right. I think this bill is important. And uh, I, I think we want to defend it. And the best way to defend it is to do it historically. So we're going to dive in historically and we're going to we're going to do it right. We're going to get into all the details of it. We have been taking this thing point by point. We got yesterday we got through points one through three. Uh, point number one was the United States of America is a nation under God. And we talked about that. I guess just to do some review, because repetition is the mother of memory. And, you know, when you're in history class or any other class for that matter, you've got to review. So let's review quickly. Uh, and we talked about how, yes, the United States is a nation under God. Uh, we talked about 1954 when Eisenhower and Congress uh, place the, the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And we talked about where that phrase came from, that it came from the Declar or, uh, from the Gettysburg Address. And uh, Abraham Lincoln says that we, we have an opportunity to be a nation reborn under God, rebirthed under God. And he's giving that at Gettysburg, uh, de declaring that, yes, we are a nation under God. And it's being reaffirmed in 1954. And it was Lincoln who said, I want the motto in God we trust put on the coins. And again, it was uh, 19, I think 1956 when Congress said that that's going to be our official motto. 1956 in God we trust, that, that's our motto. And so we are a nation under God. Uh, we made that point. Uh, we talked Point two about the Declaration of Independence, making clear that our nation was blessed by the Supreme Judge of the world. It states that in the very last paragraph of the Declaration. And in the first paragraph, it says that our laws are derived from the laws of nature and nature's God. We talked about that. And we also talked about uh, how the Declaration uh, points out that there is indeed a creator. And guess what? That creator gives us inalienable rights, or unalienable, as it states in the Declaration. So, uh, you know, yes, there is a God, and this God created us. And it also talks about divine providence. You know, there's four mentions to God in the Declaration. And uh, we also noticed something yesterday that there is a subtle reference to God and just to Christianity, to the, to the gospel, and to the New Testament, where Jefferson says uh, in the Declaration that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form 
as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And this jumped out at me yesterday for the very first time. When I saw the word safety and happiness, that these guys are creating a, a, a government that has its principles and foundations in such a way that they feel will give them safety and happiness. And Benjamin Rush, who was good friends with Jefferson and who signed the Declaration, says that uh, the New Testament, all its doctrines and precepts are calculated to promote the happiness of society and the safety and well-being of civil government. Happiness and safety. Wrapped up into what? Into the New Testament, wrapped up into the Bible. And in the Northwest Ordinance, Jefferson says that religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, that schools and means of education shall forever be encouraged. He basically says that the happiness of mankind and good government, it's necessary that morality, religion, and knowledge is infused. Uh, and it, it, it just seems to me that when these guys say in the declaration by these guys, I mean, Jefferson, when he's talking about laying a foundation and a framework for a new government, one based in principles, one uh, based in the organizing powers that are going to bring safety and happiness, the safety and happiness they're referring to is the scripture. So, we pointed that out yesterday in defense of this uh, of, of this bill. And point three, at the time of the First Amendment's drafting, many states observed state religions and referred to God in their constitutions. Thus, the First Amendment was never intended to contrast with the existence and veneration of God throughout our states. And we spent a lot of time here because there were some things that we had to learn. And we looked at uh, portions of some of the state's constitutions and discovered that, yes, they had requirements in those constitutions that if you were to serve in office, you had to be a Protestant, or you had to be a Christian, or you had to believe in God, or you had to uh, state or affirm that you believed the Old and New Testament were divinely inspired. Did, did you know that? Did you know that was in state constitutions? I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't know it until I looked into it. This is why this is why history class on the dean's list is so important. It's why we've got to have it. Because it's a portion of our history that we stopped receiving. It, we just flat out stopped getting it. We stopped learning about it. And, you know, today we're going to dive into the to the whys a little bit. We're going to we're going to see what happened if we if we get there. I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're going to get there or not. Uh, I, I mean, we're going to get there eventually, if not today, definitely tomorrow or the next day. We're going to get there this week. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you that way. All right. Back to the bill. Protect, uh, Protect Prayer and Schools Act. And his subscript is to provide for a cause of action 
to remedy prohibitions on personal prayer in schools. That's what we're doing. We are providing a cause of action to remedy this prohibition on personal prayer. And we are defending, we, we, we are defending this cause of action. So let's get back at it. Number four in his bill says, the intent of the Constitution was never to render the United States a secular country. Oh, that is so true. That couldn't be more true. But you know what? I have heard people say, and maybe you've also heard them say it, the Constitution is a secular document. There is no mention of God. Yeah, yeah sure, the, the Declaration, okay, we're going to give you that. I mean, the Declaration, you know, God is in the Declaration, but not the Constitution. No, the Constitution is a secular document. Well, I beg to differ. I don't believe it is secular. I want to read a portion to you of the Constitution where subtly, it's just, it's subtle. Matter of fact, there are two things from the Constitution I will read to you that are very subtle, but they're important. This is the very end of the Constitution just prior to the amendments. It's the, it's the end of Article 7. The second paragraph of Article 7 says this, done in convention by the unanimous consent of the states present the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1787, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 12th, in witness whereof, we have hereunto subscribed our names. So they could have very easily signed off on this thing by saying that it was done in the convention by the unanimous consent of the states present, 17th day of September, uh, 1787. They could have just said September 17th, 1787 very easily. But they were, and, and there's other places that they do sign it that way. There's other places that it's just dated with the normal date, but the Constitution is not that way. The Constitution says the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1787. Who is our Lord in this in this context here? What are, they, what are they referring to when they say, in the year of our Lord, they're referring to Jesus Christ? Yeah, I get it. It's subtle, but it, it's important because they could have left that out because in other documents they do. They don't say in the year of our Lord. But in the Constitution, subtly, they, 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 just, they just drop it in there. They just want you to know. We understand who our Lord is. He's Jesus Christ. And we also understand that this country has Jesus Christ as its foundation. Therefore, we are going to sign off in the year of our Lord. Oh, come on, Dean, you're reading into it. Just, just stop. You're just reading into it. I mean, okay. Uh, I mean, you could say I'm reading into it, and I would maybe agree with you that I'm reading into it, with the exception that they don't sign other official documents this way in the year of our Lord. 
I, I, I think they are. Uh, I think they're making a statement. There's something else in here, though, that they make a, a a slight little subtle statement. It's in Article One, Section Seven, Paragraph One, Two. It looks like the second paragraph, the end of the second paragraph. Just so subtly. Matter of fact, it's in parentheses. It's a parenthetical statement. It's so subtle. Listen to this. If any bill shall not be returned by the president within 10 days, and in parentheses it says, Sundays accepted, after it shall have been presented to him, the same shall be law, in like manner as if he had signed it, unless the Congress by their adjournment prevent its return, in which case it shall not be a law. Oh, I mean, what's that mean? Why are we accepting Sundays? Uh, we don't work on weekends. Well, they didn't say Saturday. They just said, hmm, if any bill shall not be returned by the president within 10 days, Sundays accepted. Well, Sundays are the Christian Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And America, guess what? It's a Christian nation. And therefore, we are going to honor the Christian Sabbath. We're not going to work on Sunday. There's no work on Sunday. The president can't come into the Oval Office and sign bills on Sunday. It's like Chick-fil-A before Chick-fil-A was a thing. You just you, you don't work on Sunday. They didn't say anything about Saturday. You know, that's the, the Jewish Sabbath. They didn't say anything about Friday. That was the Muslim Sabbath. But it was Sunday. Sunday accepted. So when Matt Gates says the intent of the Constitution was never to render the United States a secular country, I mean, subtly, in just these two subtle ways, the Constitution is letting us know, guess what? We are not a secular country. We're going to sign this document in the year of our Lord. And who is our Lord? He is Jesus Christ. And we're signing this document in the year of him. And guess what else we're going to put in this document, parenthetically, that we're not working on Sundays. And the reason we're not working on Sundays is because Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. We're taking Sundays off, folks. We're taking it off. It, and you know what? Maybe in your perusal of the Constitution, we just looked that part over. I mean, it's in parentheses. But we have to pay attention because words mean things. And these guys put put everything in that document for it to mean something. And it does. It absolutely means something. Signing it off in the year of our Lord, to me, is significant. Put it, put the, but putting the Sunday exception, even though it's in parentheses, to me, it's significant. It's telling us something. If we're paying attention, America, it's telling us that we are a Christian nation that were founded on Christian principles. And a part of those principles are morality. I mean, that's just, that's just the way it is. That is our founding. That's our foundation. But today we look around and we don't see that. We see a replacement. Because once we kicked out the Bible, once we kicked out prayer, once we kicked out morality from our schools, that void was filled with something else. 
And it's taken us a while to get to where we are and filling that void, but now we are at a place none of us are happy with. Well, none of us with a brain are happy with. We have hit a spot where uh, intelligent thinking people realize, holy cow, what in the world? How did we get here? And we can look back and we can see how we got here. And today we're doing that. We are looking back and we're, we're paying attention. We're seeing how we got here. And as a matter of fact, when we dive into the next point, uh, oh man, you are just going to be, I got a feeling you're going to be so livid. You know, occasionally I'll give these warnings where if you're driving, you're going to need to pull over. Uh, or if you're at home, you know, go grab a pillow because you're going to want to either scream into it or, you know, punch into it or, you know, throw it up in the air and deliver a gorgeous roundhouse Chuck Norris style. Uh, this might be this might be one of those days. Yeah, today might be one of those days as as we oh man, as we dive into this next point, you're just gonna all right. So uh we will not dive into it before the break, not enough time. But point four, the intent of the constitution was never to render the United States a secular country. And we're gonna see that even more uh as we as we dive in, as we get into the first amendment. Because that's really what this is all about. It's all about the First Amendment. And that'll take us there um, in the next point. So, all right, but no worries. I will give you fair warning when it's time to pull over or when it's time to grab the pillow. Or, you know, if you're out in the farm and you're operating heavy machinery, I'll give you fair warning. We'll give you a countdown. It'll be great. All right, let's pick it up on the other side of the break. You are listening to The Dean's List on America Out Loud Talk Radio. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Welcome back to The Dean's List. I am Dean Bone, and you are listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio. America Out Loud is a leading voice in the rise of the new media. 
It is America's premier news network where smart people go to get their news and information. So congratulations on being one of the smart ones. You have made it to the Dean's List. We are happy to have you on board. You know, Friday last week, Cindy came in studio and I don't know, we just had a nice, a nice conversation. Uh, we just talked back to school stuff, really talked about parent resources, um, things that that you can access. We we talked about my faith votes. We talked about the the parent guide that they have, how to prayer walk your school, just just nice stuff. We did talk about the indoctrination map a little bit, but and that can that can make my my blood boil somewhat. But Cindy's more of a calming presence, so it's kind of nice to have her in studio occasionally, just to, just so she can just calm things down. Because I get I get amped up, and you know, defending the Constitution is something that gets me amped up. I know this is not a show about the Constitution. I understand that. It's a show about education. But guess what? Education touches everything. I'm going to say that till I'm blue in the face. And it even touches the Constitution because they have they they, they have gone to great lengths to warp and manipulate the Constitution so they can then warp and manipulate education. Mm, and that just, oh, that sends me. That just... We're going to have to pull over here in a minute. All right, let's dive back into the defense of this bill here, the Protect Prayer in Schools Act. We are on a mission to deep dive into this thing just to offer some defense. So here is point five. This is Matt Gates and point five of this bill. Our founding fathers would be appalled to learn the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment was being weaponized not to prevent the establishment of a state religion, but to suppress religion in schools across the states, contrary to the free exercise clause. All right. It's a lot of verbiage there, but it's good verbiage. And we've got to dive into it because this, to me, point five is the most important point in this bill. I mean, he's got good points in it. But the fact that the First Amendment has been weaponized against itself is just one of the most frustrating things. And when we go back into the history and you see how this has played out, you are going to be so angry. If you're a freedom-loving American, you're going to be angry about it. All right, so the First Amendment. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. We know that. That is what we call the Establishment Clause. Okay, it's pretty straightforward. The second half says, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And that's the Free Exercise Clause. So this whole portion of religion in the First Amendment is separated in these two clauses, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And so this is you know, this is what we talk about when we refer to establishment, that Congress shall make no law that establishes a religion. They can't do it. And that Congress cannot prohibit the free exercise thereof. Well, what's the thereof? It's religion. 
they 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 can't prohibit the free exercise of it. Now, words mean things. We will you will hear me make that statement repeatedly. If I make any statement repeatedly, that's going to be one of them. Words mean things, and they they drafted this amendment to say exactly what they meant for it to say. And it's it's pretty straightforward. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And they can't prohibit it. Oh, I, I just, I don't. Here's what Noah Webster has to say about words. Okay, Noah Webster, yep, he's the dictionary guy, so he knows about words. In the lapse of two or three centuries, changes have taken place which in particular passages obscure the sense of the original languages. The effect of these changes is that some words are being used in a sense different from that which they had. Whenever words are understood in a sense different from that which they had when introduced, mistakes may be very injurious. Injurious. Lots of injury. Look, you're going to make mistakes when you are using words in a modern definition. When these words were crafted decades, maybe centuries ago, and they may have had a different definition. And Webster's saying, you got to be careful about this. You have to, you have to look at the original definition of a word. And Webster gets it. He understands how to define a word. He's he, he wrote a dictionary. And so here's what Thomas Jefferson had to say about it. He is writing to Supreme Court Justice William Johnson on the Constitution. Here's what he says. On every question of construction, carry ourselves back to the time when the Constitution was adopted. Recollect the spirit manifested in the debates. And instead of trying what meaning may be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, conform to the probable one in which it was passed. Oh, it's just so simple. It, 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 it's just so simple. If we would just take their advice, and he's specifically talking about the Constitution, and he's talking to a Supreme Court justice, and he's saying, look, if you want to know the meaning, you got to go back to the spirit of the debate. Uh, he says, instead of trying what meaning may be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, conform to the probable one. You know, the, the, the one on which it was passed, the one that it was intended. But he said, you got to go back to the spirit of the debate. Now, Jefferson was alive during the debate. I mean, he was a part of it. The Supreme Court justice he's writing to was alive during the debate. The men in this time period were alive during the debate. So how do we figure it out? We weren't alive. Can't we just kind of make it up as we go? No, no, we can't. I mean, amazingly enough, though, the debate is written down. Oh, these guys were smart. They were smart. They knew what they were doing, and they wrote things down. And if we just had some Supreme Court justices who were equally smart, 
who would go back and read what they wrote. Oh, man. Here's what James Madison said. I entirely concur in the propriety of resorting to the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation. The sense, the feeling, the mood. Let's go back to what the words meant. In that sense alone, it is the legitimate Constitution, he says. And if that be not the guide in expounding it, there can be no security for a consistent and stable, more than for a faithful exercise of its powers. What a metamorphosis would be produced in the code of law if all its ancient phraseology were to be taken in its modern sense. Holy smokes. Are we even paying attention to James Madison today? I don't know. I don't, I mean, I know we weren't in 1947 and in the 1950s and 60s in that Supreme Court building. We were not, we were not paying attention to Madison or Jefferson. And we weren't paying attention to James Wilson either. Here's what James Wilson says The first and governing maxim in the interpretation of a statute is to discover the meaning of those who made it. And James Wilson knows what he's talking about. He is one of our most distinguished founding fathers, probably the most distinguished founding father you've never heard of. He was one of only six who signed both the Declaration and the Constitution. He was the second most active member of the Constitutional Convention. He spoke 168 times on the floor of the convention. He was a law professor. He was nominated by President George Washington as an original justice on the Supreme Court. And in 1792, he was co-author of America's first legal commentaries on the Constitution. So James Wilson knows what he's talking about. He's a man other Supreme Court justices should pay attention to. Hmm. Here's what Justice Joseph Story had to say about it. Another man that other justices should pay attention to. Joseph Story said the first and fundamental rule in the interpretation of all documents is to construe them according to the sense of the terms and the intention of the parties. Holy smokes, it's becoming more obvious, isn't it? The more we read the founding, the more we read what these guys said and wrote, it's just, it's obvious to us. It's almost as if we're, it just makes me want to want to say, how are we, how do we have justices that miss this? Oh, but are they missing it? Mm. It just, I, I don't think you can sit on the bench of the Supreme Court and miss this. I, I think you're doing it on purpose. I think you're intentionally looking away. You're intentionally looking away. Joseph's story. We're going to come back to Joseph's story here because there's something there's something important about him. He, of course, was nominated to the Supreme Court by James Madison. And he is the founder of Harvard Law School. And that is, I want you to, to, to write that down somewhere. If you're taking notes, Joseph's story is the founder of Harvard Law School because Harvard Law School is going to play a role in all this. <laughs> and it's ironic that the founder of Harvard Law School 
is making this statement that the first and fundamental rule in the interpretation of all documents is to construe them according to the sense of the terms and intention of the parties. Go back to the original. What did they intend? What were they saying? What were their notes? What were their debates? We have to look at all this. We, we, we absolutely have to look at all of that. We, because we weren't there. None of us were alive during this time. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that we would that we would go and look at the debates, that we would that we would go to the congressional record because they're there. Mm, they're all there. Yeah, it, it was an amazing thing what they did in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 5, Paragraph 3, they said, hey, guess what? Both houses, you need to uh, keep a journal. Yeah, and you need to record things. So the 90 founders in the first federal Congress, who from June 8th to September 25th, in that glorious year of 1789, framed the First Amendment. Yeah, they're, they're talking about the First Amendment. And we have their debates. We know exactly what they meant when they said Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We know exactly what they meant. And I can promise you, they didn't mean the Establishment Clause to be weaponized against the Free Exercise Clause. That is not what they meant. In those lengthy discussions that span months, the founders repeatedly explained that they were seeking to prevent what they had experienced under Great Britain. Well, what did they experience under Great Britain? The legal establishment by the national government of a single religious denomination and exclusion of all others. That's what they experienced under Great Britain. It was one Christian denomination. I mean, the the pilgrims fled because they didn't want to be part of the Anglican. The Puritans fled because they realized they couldn't purify the Anglican. And that's what these guys are fleeing. Very simply, their off-repeated intent in all of these debates was that Congress could not officially establish any one denomination in America. And it, it's interesting when you, when if if you ever get a chance, if you ever go to, um, the website is founders.archives.gov. That's where the original documents are. Mm, that's such a great site. I talked about that last week. Founders.archives.gov. I mean, go and you can explore this stuff. Uh, the word religion. This is interesting. The word religion in the Founders' First Amendment discussions was often used interchangeably with the word denomination. So when these guys talked about religion, when it, you know if they were on the street and they met someone and they said, oh, what, what religion are you? They didn't mean, are you Jewish? Are you Christian? Are you uh, Muslim? Are you Buddhist? When they said, what religion are you? What they actually meant was, what denomination are you of the Christian religion? That's what they were referring to. The word denomination is used interchangeably with the word religion. For example, the original version of the First Amendment introduced in the Senate on September 3rd, 1789, 
stated, Congress shall not make any law establishing any religious denomination. That was the first draft. The second version said, Congress shall make no law establishing any particular denomination. And the third draft was very similar. It said, Congress shall make no law establishing any particular denomination in preference to another. Yeah, those were the drafts because they used the word denomination interchangeably with religion. So when they said Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, they were referring to the establishment of a Christian denomination. That's what they were referring to. Mm, isn't that interesting? If, if we had justices that went back to the debate and we could see clearly what these guys were getting at. All right. Uh, we have to pause. We are running fresh out of time, but we will pick it up on the other side. You're listening to The Dean's List on America Out Loud Talk Radio. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty and justice for all. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Welcome back to the Dean's List. You are listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio. You can find us here Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. on AmericaOutloud.news, where you can listen on the world-class media player, or you can find us on the iHeartRadio network, or you can download the free America Out Loud app for your Apple, Android, or Alexa, 
or the next day all shows go into podcasts. So uh, you can find us wherever you find your podcast. We are happy that you are with us. We are happy you are on board. Now, I know this is a show about education. And I know we're taking a deep dive really into almost the government, almost the Constitution, but really it's a deep dive into history. You know, uh, education, it's history, and history is education. And you got to have correct history. You just, you know, what's an education if you don't have correct history? So this deep dive is, it's important. It really is. It's important for the foundation of this country. What Matt Gates is proposing here is important. It really is. I, you know, I've, I've said, is it going to be the, the, the fix-all? Maybe not, but it's necessary. It is an important part to relay the foundation. So we, we left that last break, and we were really defining the word religion. So in, in the second segment, I read you quotes from, from various individuals, Noah Webster, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Wilson, and Joseph Story. Those two guys were Supreme Court justices. And all of them said, all of them said without fail that you, that you need to look at the original intent, the what was happening during the debate? What, what was the meaning behind what these guys were framing? And the word religion is a very important word. And it's used in the in their debates for, for this First Amendment. The word religion is used interchangeably with the word denomination. These guys use the word interchangeably. Christian denomination. So they weren't referring to the word religion in, in another religion outside of Christianity. It is all-inclusive inside of Christianity. And their religion was the various denominations within Christianity. Okay, Because that's what they came from. They came from a Christian country, which said, you have to be this particular type of denomination. And they didn't want to. They had their own denominations, their own sects, their own versions that they wanted to freely practice. And so the pilgrims come, the Puritans come, the Quakers come, the, the Baptists show up, the Congregationalists show up. Yeah, I mean, you name it, they're here. And these denominations make up the different religions, but it's all one religion. It's all under the umbrella of Christianity. So in the Northwest Ordinance, when Jefferson says religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, he's saying, in essence, Christianity. That word religion, you can take it out, you can replace it for Christianity, because that was the religion that, that they wanted this country founded on. You know, Benjamin Rush said, the religion I'm referring to is the one of the New Testament, because that's the one that creates security and happiness, happiness for the people and security for the government. And that is a very important point that we, we need to establish here in terms of the First Amendment. Congress, so 
we could read it this way, actually, in their original thinking. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of a particular denomination of the Christian religion or prohibiting the free exercise of that particular denomination of the Christian religion. When the First Amendment was finally approved, it contained these two separate clauses on religion. Each had their own independent scope. Of course, the Establishment Clause is the first. It prohibits the federal government from establishing a single national denomination, in essence. And the second is, you know, the free exercise clause, and it prohibits the federal government from interfering with people's public religious expressions. Both clauses restricted the action of the federal government, and that's an important point. Neither restricted the actions of the citizens. Very simply put, the Founding Fathers did not want a single federal denomination to rule America. But they did expect basic biblical principles and values to be present throughout the public life and society. But we have the exact opposite today. We uh, were not allowed. Students are not allowed to pray in public schools. And that was not the intent. Both clauses, I'm, I'm going to say this again, because, again, you know, repetition's the mother of memory. We're going to repeat things. Both clauses restricted the actions of the federal government. They didn't restrict the actions of the citizens. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So just because a, a, a student wants to wants to pray or a teacher wants to pray with a student in the public school, there is no... There is no law being established there by Congress acknowledging a religion. Mm, but but you see how things have been turned and twisted. Uh-huh. And the, the free exercise clause says that Congress can't prohibit the free exercise of that, but yet that is being prohibited. There is no uh allowability of, of free exercise of any type of prayer at all in the public square, anything that's got the word public on it. Isn't that interesting? And this is what Matt Gates is saying in point five, where he says the founding fathers would be appalled to learn the establishment clause of the First Amendment was being weaponized against the free exercise clause. Mm. He is spot on. He is absolutely nailing it spot on. So what was the sense and meaning of the First Amendment then? We have to ask ourselves, what was the sense and the meaning of the First Amendment? Well, I mean, it's pretty clear. The sense and the meaning was that they, they didn't want a particular denomination established. That's what they, they, because to them, religious liberty was, it was huge. Religious liberty to these guys is everything. I don't think I am overstating that. It was everything to them. They didn't want, you know, they didn't want their religious liberty infringed upon. 
So 10 days after his inauguration, George Washington writes a letter to the United Baptist Churches of Virginia. So listen to what George Washington says 10 days after his inauguration. He's writing a letter to the United Baptist Churches of Virginia. Listen to this. If I could have entertained the slightest apprehension that the Constitution framed by the convention, where I had the honor to preside, might possibly endanger the religious rights of any ecclesiastical society, certainly I would never have placed my signature on it. <laughs> I mean, this is George Washington. And, he, and, and he's saying, I, I would not have signed the Constitution if I believed that any portion of it endangered religion at all whatsoever. Wouldn't have done it. During the debates, you know, because we need to go back and, and look to see what was happening, Representative Thomas Tucker of South Carolina made a motion to completely strike the Establishment Clause from the First Amendment. He just said, let's get rid of it. I don't want the Establishment Clause even there. The Establishment Clause is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. He wanted that out. He said, let's get rid of it because he thought it could be misapplied to preempt the religious clauses existing in the various state constitutions. Because as we discovered yesterday, the states had religious clauses in their constitutions. The states promoted religion, and they promoted it intently. They were like, you, you, wait, what, you want to be in Congress? You want to be in the House of Representatives? Do you want to be a senator? Do you want to be governor? Nope. You can't be unless you're a Protestant. You can't be unless you uh, are, are saying you believe in God. No, you can't be unless you unless you agree that the Old and New Testament were divinely inspired. These states already had their clauses. And so Thomas Tucker of South Carolina is saying, let's not even put the Establishment Clause in there. It doesn't even need to be in there. Roger Sherman of Connecticut thought the First Amendment was completely unnecessary. He, he wanted to get rid of both clauses. He said the state delegates, when writing the U.S. Constitution, only gave the federal government specific powers and authority, and religion was not one of them. And, of course, in Article Article 1, the, 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 the legislative article, there are a list of things. And in that list, it's here's what you guys, you guys in Congress, here's what you can do. And Sherman is saying, why are we even saying you know what they can't do we've already told them what they can do you know so these guys you know they were they were like let's not even have this amendment in here so in a letter to samuel miller 1808 thomas jefferson right so it's you know he's wrapping up his second term he says i consider the government of the united states as prohibited by the Constitution from intermeddling with religious institutions, their doctrines, their disciplines, or their exercises. Now, this is Thomas Jefferson. Okay, this is the same Thomas Jefferson that Supreme Courts will say, oh, Jefferson said a wall of separation between church and state. Yep, there's a wall. Yeah, but the wall in Jefferson's mind was that the government had no right to intermeddle with religious institutions. 
or their doctrines or their disciplines or their exercises. They, they, they couldn't touch them. He continues, this results not only from the provision that no law shall be made respecting the establishment or free exercise of religion. So there he cites the First Amendment. But from that also which reserves to the states the powers not delegated to the United States, which is the Tenth Amendment. Because the powers that aren't given to the federal government, they go to the states. Certainly, he continues, no power to prescribe any religious exercise or to assume authority and religious discipline has been delegated to the federal government. But yet, we are currently living under a federal government that has usurped that power for themselves. And in the 1960s, we just had people stand by and, and watch it happen. JFK, the day that the Supreme Court said, we're kicking prayer out of schools, JFK gives a speech. I mean, you can go on YouTube and find it. And he says, you know, we might not agree with it, but we have to abide by it. But you can still pray in your homes. I mean, it's fine. You know, go ahead and pray in your homes. I mean, the, the federal government, you know, has just usurped this authority. But, you know, I mean, you could still pray, right? And no, no, there, there, there should have been some pushback in that moment. You know, I wasn't alive. Maybe there was. I, you know what? I should probably do some some reading of that, of the debates in Congress of that time. I bet there was some pushback, actually. I bet there was some pushback. But not enough. There wasn't enough pushback to for us to see some change. All right, I'm going to keep reading. This is Jefferson. He's continuing in his letter to Samuel Miller. This is 1808. I do not believe it is for the interest of religion to invite the civil magistrate to direct its exercises, its disciplines, or its doctrines. Every religious society has a right to determine for itself the times of these exercises and the objects proper for them, according to their own particular tenets. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He's saying the government should not be a part of this. James Madison makes this journal entry, 1788. This is what Madison says. There's not a shadow of right in the federal government to intermeddle with religion. The subject is, for the honor of America, perfectly free and unshackled. The government has no jurisdiction over it. Mm -hmm. That's 1788. So uh, I'm going to read you one more. One more. This is from Thomas Jefferson. This is his second inaugural address. This is March 4th, 1805. So this is the third thing from Jefferson that I've read to you. But yet the Supreme Court uses his letter. All right. He says, in matters of religion, I have considered that its free exercise is placed by the Constitution independent of the powers of the federal government. I have therefore undertaken on no occasion to prescribe the religious exercise suited to it, but have left them as the Constitution found them under the direction and discipline of state and church authorities by the several religious societies. Three quotes from Thomas Jefferson. Yet, 
our Supreme Court takes eight words from a letter he wrote, and they use that to weaponize one part of the First Amendment against the other. Well, uh, I did not think we would get through this deep dive completely today. Uh, we are in part two. Guess what? Guess what, kids? Tomorrow is part three, history class part three on the dean's list. I wish we had more time. You know what? We have all the time in the world, right? We have tomorrow, we have the next day, and the next day, and the next day. We're just going to keep on going. We are going to keep on hammering this home. We, we're, we're, we're defending this bill that Matt Gates is putting out that is has the intent of protecting prayer in public schools. And we're going to take our time defending this bad boy. We're going we're gonna to do it. We're going to do it right. But that's all the time we have for today, America. Thank you for joining me. I'm happy that you're on the Dean's List. Get out and invite your friends and family to get on the Dean's List. And let's unite to renovate the age. <laughs>